Hello, welcome to Montana Voice. We're reading from The Lie. Where we last left off, Kaori had murdered her ex-boyfriend and his new girlfriend, has been arrested for it, and is in jail. And Enzi's software hack had been discovered and turned off. This episode is called Luke's. I hope you enjoy it. Sai ordered me to Seattle and then hung up on me. I was tired of the ether and the wires. I was tired of the networks and the phones. I wanted to see her again. So I drove to the jail, parked, and went to the front door. There was no window, only a locked door and a brick wall. I rang a buzzer and a voice from a speaker in the wall above me asked me what I wanted. I talked to the speaker. I told them Kaori's name and I said I wanted to see her. The voice told me that visiting hours were only on the weekends unless I had a court order to visit her now or unless her lawyer was accompanying me. I went back in my car and I drove downtown. I turned off Front Street and drove into the large parking lot by the river where I had seen Pascal's truck several times. It was there, and I saw Pascal sitting in the front seat reading a book. He smiled and nodded when he saw me. He got out of his truck and said, Haven't heard from a fella in a while. I wondered about him. I told him that I was looking for him and had guessed that he would be parked down there. Only least lot downtown, he said. Land that no one wants, yet. Probably be a hotel soon. I asked him what he was reading, and he held up the book, If Not Now, When, by Primo Levy. Is it good? I asked. He shrugged. Words, you know. And he tossed the book into the cab's back seat and then asked, What is a fellow thinking about now? I asked him if he knew anything about Kaori, about what was going to happen next. He said he didn't know anything other than what he had been reading in the paper. I told him that I had stopped reading the news. He said the newspapers hadn't written anything that we didn't already know. I told Pascal that I wanted to see her, to talk with her, and had just been to the jail where they had said I would have to wait until Saturday to see her or go in with her lawyer. So I asked him if he knew who her lawyer was, and Pascal told me that he assumed that it was one of the public defenders, and he told me where their offices were. We were both standing and leaning against Pascal's truck, looking towards the back of the buildings on Front Street. Pascal pointed to a new building close to us, the back of a restaurant, and he said, That used to be Luke's Bar before it was burnt. You remember the place? <laughs> nah, I told him no, I didn't. He said, Luke's. There was a pizza place in the back. The newspaper said that a grease fire started in an oven. Then he asked, A fellow want to hear something never told before? A fellow want to share a secret? I answered, Sure, I'm already holding a few of them. One more won't hurt. 
Pascal nodded and then said, It wasn't no pizza fire. It was someone hiding in the back closet, and then he piled up cardboard pizza boxes and empty beer cases in a corner, and he lit it. I found out because last year he got busted for a repeat DUI. A family member called me from someplace, my number in the Google search, and then wired me money, had me bail him out. It was a sad case. At the hearing, they sent him to Warm Springs for 60 days of treatment, and he hung himself there. I figure I can tell a fellow what he told me. Al pointed back to where Luke's had been, and then he went on. I used to go there all the time, live music most nights of the week. You sure you were never in there? <laughs> no, I, I told him, no, I hadn't. A fellow missed out of the best part of Missoula, Anyway, Luke's looked like a rough place. Harleys in a row, barmaids with tattoos, spit on the floor, that kind of place. But it wasn't bad. It was music and great dancing. Ace Wheeler's Talent Showcase, Banjo Bill Wiley, Eric Forrest, good dance place. I asked him if he had brought the Norway girl there, and he laughed and he said, Ah, nah, Luke's was way before Nordsky's time. Anyway, he said, college girls would come in with their boyfriends and all these old-time broke-down cases, uh, they would mostly just stand by the bar watching the girls. Quiet, hard-drinking types. You see memories drowning in their eyes. He looked at me and he continued. Client who killed himself, he tells me that he was at Luke's every night drinking until he couldn't hardly walk. Then he would get in his car and drive and get his DUIs. He tells me, though, that he didn't used to drink at all. He tells me that the first time he walked into Luke's, nearly 20 years ago, a girl asks him to dance. Client said, well, as he put it, she was a perfect beauty. You must understand that my client is what I would just call a... <laughs> A perfect, ugly, twisted, pitted face, no symmetry at all. And this perfect beauty was a blind, drunk drinker, he tells me. He tells me a story, tells me that she was fired from some big city ballet that was doing a performance at the U. Fired for being drunk. Fired, and then she goes straight downtown and picks up my client. She even tells him that she wanted to know what someone with a rough face was like. Tells him that she was tired of pretty people. She tells him that. But he doesn't care, because now he is in love. He, he had a job, and he had a rented place, and she stayed with him for a while. Each night, the two would go to Luke's, dance, and drink. He said she loved dancing almost as much as she liked her drink. But then, no explanation, she dumped him. And then he finds out that she was shacked up with someone else. And then a while later, someone else again. She had stayed in Missoula, though, and she kept going to Luke's, and she kept dancing and drinking. My client said he also kept going there, to Luke's, sitting at the bar, and would stare at her and whomever it was she was dancing with, said he was waiting for her to come back to him. He said 
He even kept an unopened fifth on the bathroom counter and a full ice cube in the freezer. Said she liked drinking whiskey with ice in the bath. Pascal shook his head, and then he continued. Then, my client said, she stopped coming into Luke's and that he never saw her again. Anyway, she was gone about 20 years, but my client kept drinking every night up there. Then Pascal waved his arms toward where Luke's used to be. Said he kept going into Luke's each night, sitting and watching the girls. Said if he drank enough, he would see her face and all their faces. See the strangers become his beauty. Then he burnt the place down and he didn't get caught. Told me that he had to do it to save his life, (laughs) Uh, but it didn't help. He kept drinking and told me he kept seeing her face even when he slept. Probably saw her face too clearly when he was taking treatment at Warm Springs. Finally ended it all with torn bedsheets and a light fixture. Pascal sighed. I figured he gave me his life story. He gave it to me alone. (laughs) Now I've shared it with you. We were quiet for a bit. And then Pascal added, You know, a guy walks into Luke's his first time and a friggin' ballerina falls into his arms. His first mistake was meeting her and his second was thinking it would happen again. Pascal looked at me and he asked, Is that going to be your story? I gotta say, a fella has the same look, haunted, looking for more of the same bad. But before I could answer, he smacked the side of his truck and he said, Hell, I see the same look in my eyes when I shave. Same look in most everyone's eyes, looking for lost chances. Then he pointed at me, his finger lightly touching my chest, And he said, a fella just happens to have his one locked in the slammer for keeps. That must hurt. Come on, let's find out which one of the lazy snakes is hers. It's your turn to drive. Pascal got in my car and gave me directions to the public defender's offices, which were nearby. We went inside, and the receptionist knew Pascal and the two talked about the weather for a while and how cold the coming winter would be. Then Pascal asked the receptionist if he knew who was handling the Japanese artist murder. The receptionist answered, Clint Yukolaw for now. You want to talk with him? I think he was about to go visit with clients, but you might be able to catch him if you hurry. And he pointed upstairs. We went up a flight of stairs to a small office with an open door. Inside was an albino man. His hair was typing paper white and his eyes were red. He looked up at us as we knocked on his door and he recognized Pascal. When he said hello to him, he glanced at me and then he spoke to Pascal. Don't be asking for specialized exceptions. I am booked solid in an extravagant manner. He said this with pauses between the words, like he was fishing with worms for big ones. Pascal answered, Ah, Clint, this is just a friend. And he introduced me and said, 
This fella is the sorry-ass fool who bailed K.R.E.Y., double murderer, out the first time. He was hoping you could spend some of your valuable time with him. The lawyer looked at me and then met Pascal, and he shuffled folders on his desk. Then he looked up at a clock, and the lawyer said, There isn't truly a purpose, a point. She doesn't want representation. She has presented no defense in any manner. However, being that we live in a death penalty state, she must have counsel. He sighed and he said, I am yet temporary. There will be someone from Helena taking her files from me soon. Besides, and he looked up at the clock again, my entire day is orchestrated by obligations. No time at all for unscheduled encounters. I explained then that I just wanted to talk briefly with Kaori and had been told I would have to wait until the weekend unless her lawyer accompanied me. So I asked him if there was any way to get me in that afternoon. Any chance at all, I asked. Yukalaw again looked at the clock. Then he looked at Pascal and said, In private practice, I would be able to charge for breaking my schedule. Pascal asked, What would a private practice lawyer be able to charge for such a thing? Albino answers, It would be a three-hour disruption, and lawyers who handle capital cases get at least 300 an hour. He sighed again, shuffled more folders on his desk, and then said, looking at me, But then, I am simply a ward, if you will, of the state, much the same as all our clients become. Now I must be off. Then the lawyer stood up, put on a heavy coat, and turned the collar up to above his ears. He also took a large felt cowboy hat from the coat rack and put that on too. We left his office and went downstairs with him. He paused by the steps and put on a pair of dark sunglasses and said, I'm heading out towards the jail. Pascal looked at me and then back to the lawyer and then said, Hey, Clint, this fella here might be heading out that way too. Tell you what, wait for him just a tad before you buzz yourself in. Fella might be interested in talking with you then. The lawyer nodded and then said, I have realized that I have forgotten something of need. I will be about ten minutes delayed. And then he turned and went back inside. Pascal touched my shoulder and said, Come on! And we walked back and got in my car. Is it worth 900 bucks for you to see her today? Pascal asked. Mr. Slees is giving a fellow the chance to get to the bank. I know, he does things like this. It is the reason he still works for the city. He makes money doing almost nothing at all. I told Pascal that I did not need to go to the bank, that I had enough cash, and yes, it was worth it. Pascal nodded, then said that I should just give the money to him then and drive to the jail and wait. 
Pascal told me that he would give the $900 to the lawyer. I took 10 $100 bills from the wad of money in my coat pocket and gave them to Pascal. I said, just keep one. Pascal removed one bill from what I had handed him and put the rest into his coat pocket. Then he handed me back the extra hundred and said, I never take this sort of dirt. Reason I am broke all the time. I might facilitate it a bit, but I don't want to profit from any of Eucalaw's sleaze. He would be hiding from the sun even if he did have pigment. The freak show shines right out of those eyes, bleak. Pascal got out of my car and said, I will walk back to my office. A fellow can drop by later. Then he headed back toward the public defender's office. I drove to the jail, second time in one day. The road was spotted with ice, and the sky was the color of depression. At the jail, I went and waited by the door with the buzzer, and after a few minutes, the lawyer's car pulled into the lot. He got out and walked up to me, whistling. I just nodded at him, and he said, I examined my schedule and found I am actually supposed to visit 1K Yakamoto today. Imagine that, I replied. And then I said fast, I want to be alone with her. Do you understand that, right? He shrugged and said, I shall ask the jailer in private to determine the appropriateness of your private request. I shall also pass on the information that you have indicated that you have personal affairs to discuss. Then he pressed the buzzer, and he and I were inside of an airlock room that stunk of unwashed feet and guilty sweat. Then we were buzzed into a long hallway that was blocked by a security checkpoint. The albino lawyer talked briefly and quietly with a jailer and filled out some paper. Then we both emptied our pockets. Keys and wallets and phones went into envelopes. We walked through a metal detector and were escorted by the jailer Yukalaw had spoken with. We were led through another electronically locked door into a hallway lined with metal doorways. I had assumed that the jailer would have us wait in some kind of meeting room and then would have seen if Kiori had wanted to see me, but instead we were brought straight to her. While we were walking, the lawyer explained that he would wait out in the hallway while I visited with Kaori. The jailer said to the lawyer, While she's in this place, you make most of the rules. I'm just an escort, and I'll be outside the door. And then the jailer added, She's on a suicide watch anyway. Camera sees and hears everything. The desk will be watching and recording everything. We stopped at a numbered door, and the jailer used a pass card key something that looked like a hotel key card, and opened the door. He did not knock. He did not ask permission. Kaori was alone in a cell about five feet wide 
by 10 feet long with a high 10-foot ceiling. There was a bed, a sink, and a toilet built into the wall at the end. Kaori sat on the bed, cross-legged, hair in front of her face, sketching in a notebook. She did not look up. The jailer motioned me in and said, Mash this button if you need attention, otherwise I will be back in 15. And he pointed to a big black button near the door. And then I was locked in with Kaori. For about half a minute, I stood quietly and did not say anything. She was wearing a jail uniform that looked vaguely like bright pajamas. She was also wearing slippers like the ones she had on the night I had bailed her out. I could hear her uneven breathing, a quiet gasping which was in time with the motions of her arm. She was cross-hatching and filling in an area in her sketchbook with a rubbery-looking felt-tip pen. Finally, I said, Hello, Kaori. She stopped drawing and looked up. I had expected her to be angry or indifferent, but instead she happily exclaimed, You! and dropped the pen and pushed the notebook away. She jumped off the bed and came up and hugged me. She said, you visit me. She stepped back and asked questioningly, you take me out now? You bail me? I shook my head no. I said that she could not be bailed out. I explained that I was just there to see her and that we did not have much time. She nodded and pointed up to a small recessed video camera that was mounted by one of the ceiling's corners and said, They watch all time, I know. So shamed, light never goes off. I touched her hand and said we should talk. I stepped around her and sat on the bed, but she stayed standing. She saw the discoloration that was still across my face, the bruising from where she broke my nose, and she asked, Face hurt? So sorry. Not you, I hit. Not you. I answered, I'm fine. And then I said, No, no, I'm not fine. I am, how did you say it once? I am so sad. She said, You remember everything, but must not be sad for me. I be sad for me. Me and my lonely, me and my own time. Then she clapped her hands together and said, I have idea, play game. I tell you happy word and you tell me happy word. I asked her what she meant and she replied with, Plum, so good, dark plum. She closed her eyes. She moved her tongue slightly out of her mouth, over her lips and said, So How you say, delicious. And then she opened her eyes and looked at me and said, Now you, give me happy word. Delicious, I said. Yes, plums are delicious. She was looking at me, honestly waiting for me to say a word, a single word. Again, like the first time I had seen her, I had had no idea what to do or say. I was not even sure why I was there. I wanted to confess to her about the money I had buried. I wanted to tell her about Sai, or 
I wanted to ask Kaori about herself, about everything that I would otherwise never know about her. Sweet drink, plum, a game, a child, no good word, no single word. I picked up the sketchbooks, another school notebook with lined paper, and I asked, looking at her, Kaori, do you need other notebooks, ones without lines? No, she answered. Those not happy words. Game is happy word. Then I talk. She came over and took the notebook from me and held it. Say happy word now. Give me happy word. I was quiet for a few moments. And then I said, okay, how about moon? She smiled and I said, full moon on a clear night. I looked at Kaori, and she was still smiling, so I went on. Stars, no city lights, a clear sky. And day, will day be clear too? She asked, nodding. Day, good like night? Yes, I answered. Sleep in the day, and I pointed at the narrow slit of a window up by the ceiling at the far end of the cell with sun from the window to make your dreams bright. She said, You not so good with one word, but you okay with more. I say my next good words, two words, game sister and I play. Now two words, watermelon, round. I heard her say these two words, but I did not know what to respond with. I looked at the folds of her prison clothing, and no happy words came to me. I was remembering her feet and her hands and remembering her breath on my face. I asked Kaori, Kaori, do you need me to help you understand anything? I saw your checkbook once, your, your money. Does it come from your family? Does anyone in Japan know you are here? You should let someone hire you a good lawyer. She looked at me with panic and she said, this not good words, bad words. But she went on and she said, tell no one, my shame. And she bowed her head and then she said, you look. And she opened the notebook in her hands and she showed me drawings, turning the pages one at a time, not saying anything. All the drawings were beautiful. None were violent. I asked again about the lined paper, and she shook her head, no. She said, no bars here. She then motioned to the plain walls and to the door, which had no doorknob, and up to the slit of a window. They tell me, this jail, not real one. Other jail will have bars. So paper has bars. Bars are right. Lines are the bars and she moved her hand along the line paper in the notebook. I tried to explain that she had not had a trial yet, but that after the trial, unless she were innocent, she would be moved to the state prison. She said, I know. I had my trial with knife. I failed. She looked up at the video monitor and said, you tell them I no-kill self. You tell them nothing to see. You tell them I failed. I started to talk again, but
but Kaori interrupted me and said, No, now you just look. I find moments without looking. Memories. Like books on a shelf, there is a scattered chronology, a disjointed stratum. Storms followed by windless gray. But then there are peaks, a soft evening rain and a bright sunset sky with a rainbow arching over the darkening east. Then the rainbow doubles, the new colors reverse, and the center of the partial circle becomes connected with a perfect and invisible line from the sun behind my head. Does it matter that she was a chance moment? Do the thickness of the spines on the cluttered shelf matter? Do the physics of light explain the beauty of color? We have no choice other than to become veterans of time. But is it wrong to hold on to the sparks, even if they still burn? I can say, on this day, I woke up, I worked, I ate, and I slept. I can say, during this month, it was the same as last. But can I ask, can I say, I want more? Kaori said, one love. Did she sleep with me to burn her memories, her one love, whom I never met and who is now dead? She used me, I knew, I know, I didn't care, I don't care, I want more. You just look, you know touch. I remember her saying this to me in New York. I was kneeling next to the hotel bed, and she was lying on top of the covers. She had turned crosswise so that she faced the wall of glass in the cityscape night. She said, you just look, you know touch. Then, in the jail cell, I was paging through the notebook that she had handed me. In the drawings, her hands were always touching him, his shoulder, his arm, his face. And she was always looking at him. In those drawings, though, he was never looking at her. He was looking away. He looked down, or he looked past the steam rising from a cup of tea. She had killed her one love when he no longer would touch her, and she had also killed the person he had been touching. And she used a jailhouse felt-tip pen on ruled paper with lines that were the bars that her cell did not have and showed me the images that were already becoming the sparks that would keep burning. I pointed to a sketch with the teacup which had a kanji character underneath it and I asked, what does this say? And in the jail cell, while Kaori knelt on the floor next to where I was sitting on the bunk, she put her hand on mine. Then fast she took it away. She looked up into me, right into me, and said, Spring. Then she told me, Met in spring. I seventeen. He soldier. He visit Tokyo. We karaoke. We go visit in Okinawa. Train all night. Morning, I make tea for him. He tell me story about home in Montana. Says, 
Come to Montana. I closed the notebook and tried to give it back to her. But she said, No, you take, you look, you understand my art. Then the door to the cell opened, and the jailer was there, telling me I must leave. I stood up and tried to hug her, but she turned and faced the back wall of the cell. She said, No touch, ever again. Everything gone. You go now, forever. Walking through the hallway, lined with the numbered doors, out of the jail, Yukalaw, the albino lawyer, nodded towards the notebook I was carrying and asked, You get your money's worth? I said, Shut up! And he smiled like he was used to hearing people say this to him all the time. You just listened to Luke's, an episode from the novel The Lie, here on Montana Voice. I'm Steve Seroff. Thank you for visiting and listening. And once again, I ask you if you are enjoying this story unfolding and want to hear its conclusion, please share the podcast with one of your friends or two of them or even post on your social media. Thank you very much. Music for this episode was written and performed by Eric Forrest, my good friend.